Good morning, everybody. This is Corey Roseland, the Story Podcast, and today we have a very special guest today. But before we get started, I want to announce that we have some merchandise. We have some stickers, if you can see that, and we have a hoodie with all the first 50 guests on the back. So if you'd be interested in any of that, you can message us on Facebook or Instagram. With all that said, today I have on Mr. Rich Ruoff. Rich Ruoff was born in Philadelphia, however, his family moved to Lancaster when he was four, and since then, Rich has left his mark on Lancaster. One of those has been founding the internationally known venue, The Chameleon Club. Another was starting famed local festival, Lancaster Roots and Blues, which is set to occur in July uh, uh, July 9th and 10th. So that's, that's correct. That's next month, all over Lancaster City. Rich was also president of a recording studio and records label, uh, Lizard Records and Lizard Studio, which won a Grammy Award. And they won a Grammy Award from a band called Brave Combo who recorded Purple Haze from Jimi, Jimi Hendrix in a polka style. Yes. And that's how they won their Grammy Award. Uh, Rich also has been the coordinator and director for many bike races in the national and local Lancaster scene for race, races such as Red Rose Races, Rock Liddit's Bike Race and Block Party, All That Is Good, and more. You can check out his work and Roots and Blues at his at the website, LancasterRootsAndBlues.com. You can also find him on Instagram and Facebook. Mr. Rich, how are you doing today? I am well. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, man. So what really got you inspired to uh, go into business and start up your own uh, club, essentially? When I was younger, as a teenager, I used to race bicycles, and I traveled all over the country. I rode in 44 states. Um, and that traveling, I got to see and hear a lot of great music, mm. uh, and coming back to Lancaster as a young man in my twenties, uh, it just seemed kind of dead, uh, typical for a town this size and, you know, in the middle of a state. Uh, but I thought, you know, we could do better. <laughs> and, and so I had a girlfriend at the time and we would go around and go, you know, we were talking it up and I said, you know, I'm going to open a club someday. I mean, I had no knowledge. I had never worked in a bar or restaurant. I had never booked a band. Um, I was, you know, so in some sense you could say I was just talking out of the side of my mouth. But uh, after about a year of telling people that, I thought I better create something or I might have to leave town. <laughs> so um, it was just inspiration to uh, fill a void, you know, and I think in any business that's pretty important. You know, if there's three steakhouses in a row on a street, you don't want to be the person opening the fourth steakhouse. Mm. So, uh you know, I was going to do some music, a variety of music that wasn't getting played in Lancaster. And that was the goal. So what was the music scene like back then, if there, it was, if there was one to begin with? Um, there was, there was, yeah. So you had uh, like the Holiday Inn lounges, you know, so a lot of cover bands playing live music. There was an established club in town called The Village, which is still there, yeah. uh, though I believe this may be their last year. Uh, it is for sale, and I think they might have closed the deal. I don't know the details, uh, but that's been around. That's been run by the same family for over seventy years now. It's the oh, wow! Longest running club in America. Um, really? But one in the mid '80s, when I was, they were pretty much doing straight cover bands. Once in a while, they would bring in a national artist who was interesting, um, but it wasn't a regular thing. And uh, so I thought, you know, I'll do some more original music, and I'll also do stuff that the bars and pubs weren't really touching on like the blues, a little bit of jazz. Uh, some new wave was coming up 
that was the the new music at the time, which later morphed into alternative, and you know, it was constant, you know, mm-hmm. emo music, things like that. that we ended up booking, but uh, so it was just a fresh face on on the whole music scene, at least for what we were going to bring to town. And what what age was that? It was a twenty one and over club. Uh, I was. I'm sorry. What, what uh, year was that? Oh, 1985. Okay. Gotcha, so, gotcha, gotcha. yeah, I was 22 and I came up with the idea. Uh, and then by the time we got open, I was 23 years old. Uh, and that, lest you think I come from wealth, uh, I got lucky. Uh, I had a job and I saved a little bit of money. Uh, and what I did, I found a, uh, it used to be called the back room at Tom Payne's restaurant. Tom Payne's was a restaurant down on North Queen Street, right in town. And it, it was back in this day, the premier fine dining restaurant in town. But the back room was built back in the 60s, and they used to do Dixieland jazz and, and things like that. And it was a cool little space. Um, and then his, the owner's son uh, tried his hand at a few things and did some cool bands, but it wasn't a regular thing, and he wasn't real committed to it. So basically, it was sitting there empty for a year. I knew the space was there. So I cold called on the owner. I just introduced myself, and I said, hey, I'd like to rent your space and put music on. And which is about the most affordable way you can possibly get into this business because there was already a stage, there was already tables and chairs mm-hmm. and a bar. Uh, it, I piggybacked off of his liquor license, which was expensive. Uh, t- not technically, you can't really do that, so we called it a management contract. Uh, but he let me rename the room. Uh, and then, um, yeah, so for $5,000, we got open. Uh, and I say we, as my girlfriend and I, her name was Alexandra Brown. Uh, probably still is and uh the um we we opened it together uh and uh we uh but i literally had to survive week to week to week like mm. if we had booked too many shows in a row that lost money it would have been gone because i did not have deep pockets uh you know we spent money on paint cleaned the place up stocked it for the first you know week of business and then booked a band uh, a few bands on the first weekend uh, and, uh, you know, bought an ad and a little ad in the local paper. And of course we got an article in the paper because who's these young people putting, opening a new club and people just responded to it immediately. And it, the, the business was profitable in the first week, first day, the first week, first month in the first year. Wow. And that, you know, I later learned in life that that doesn't happen for a lot of new businesses. No, no, that's <laughs> <In> fact, most. <laughs> right. So we got lucky. Uh, and then I could grow and then I actually outgrew that space after three years. Uh, and that's when I moved it to uh, Water Street, which is where anybody who knows Chameleon in the last 35 years knows it from that location. So what is it like to have to uh, book people that you may, you, ha- you have to know that they're going to bring people in, right? You, you hope. You um, hope. But it's interesting. Um, one of the things I did from day one was book bands that we liked, that we thought were good. Mm. Uh, and... That's a different approach than necessarily finding somebody who has a lot of friends. It wasn't above me to find somebody who had a lot of friends, but it wasn't my driving focus for booking. So if I thought I had a really good band, I would get them in there. Of course, I would ask them to play for as cheap as they could afford to get there. Uh, but I would promote the, the, the band. I, I was the promoter. This is pre-internet. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what we developed was a reputation of, having consistently good music and most bars and pubs don't do it that way anymore. Uh, so that if you just want to go out on a Saturday night and you want to see some music, 
you didn't even have to know who was there. You'd say, oh, let's go to Commando. He's got something good. Mm. And that was that worked for us. And so we, in those first three years at that original location, I developed a really loyal fan base of people who just loved to see what we were bringing in. And they would try different styles too. So that's how I turned on a whole town of young people to blues, which even back in the mid 80s was considered old man music. Really? But here you had young people really getting into it. Uh, and so that's why, move, fast forward 30 some years, and I do this Roots and Blues Festival. A lot of my regulars that come to the festival were people who were regulars that used to come to the club back in the 80s. That's why. So why, why call it the Chameleon Club? Well, I'll give that credit to my, my partner back then, Alexandra. She was reading a novel called Chameleon. I think it was a detective novel. And uh, we, we thought, well, geez, we want to do a variety of genres. And, mm. you know, chameleons change colors. So that was that. Thing. That was that. Yeah. That's, that's funny. Uh, so... What was it like to advertise back then? What you said pre-internet. What what did you have to do? So s- locally, it was uh, just newspaper ads. You know, I'd buy like a two-inch column ad uh, in the entertainment section on Thursday evening. Back then, we had an evening paper and a morning paper. Mm. So it'd be uh, Thursday evening and Friday morning would show up, and hopefully, people would see it. Then, as people came in, so really, the first month was all word of mouth. Just like, oh, there's a buzz. There's a new club in town. So everybody came. And fortunately, we had good shows, and the response was immediate, and it fed off itself. So the word of mouth is huge. Oh, word of mouth is the it, best marketing. It, it absolutely is the best. But you still got to get some people in. Uh, and so we developed a mailing list. Old-fashioned, you sign this card. We'll put it on a mailing list. Each month, we printed a schedule, and then we would send that out. And, uh, you know, we had grown that to about 3,500, maybe 4,000 at its peak. And then the internet came out and it started shifting, you know. So, well, 4,000 is not that many. It's not like, because now, you know, if you have an email mailing list, you have tens of thousands of people on mm-hmm. it. Um, I think a printed one is a more, uh, it's a more solid thing. People would get it in the mail and they'd open it. They'd hang it on their refrigerator. Uh, and people to this day have collected them. And yeah, yeah. so I, I always go, hey, I used to have that month, you know. That's that's awesome. Yeah. Uh, was the Lancaster PA Musician uh, Magazine the thing back then? I think they came a little later, but uh, we've been in them. Well, I'm pr- sure, yeah. Pretty much the whole time. Yeah. That, I can't remember who came first, me or them, but I think they established in the 80s at some point. Cool, man. So uh, what is it like to, what are some of the challenges that you didn't expect when you opened your your club? Um. Well, um, yeah, I mean, technical challenges, uh, sound and lights in the, in the original year, I mean, we had a simple light bar with like four cans on it, you know, and they were literally old gallon pink cans, mm. uh, that, you know, we put light fixtures in, uh, and hung them up over the stage. But then the bigger, bigger, more established band started bringing a light show in, uh, but that was an old space and the electrical system wasn't up to snuff. And literally on the grand opening night, we had a big uh, 10 piece band, a horn band out of Philadelphia called Johnny O and the classic dogs of love, you know, kind of doing like Motown stuff. They were great. And uh, that, but they brought a big light show in. they had to bring their own PA in uh, and it was just drawing too much power. And the whole thing just, it just blew the whole circuit for the room. 
And fortunately, we had candles burning, and everybody was chilling out, you know, waiting for us to get it reset. And we did, and we just had to turn the lights down a lot. Because back then, you didn't have LEDs. Mm. You had parkans. And so if you had a 500-watt or a 1,000-watt parkan, you know, and you put 10 of them up, now you're drawing 10,000 watts. It adds up quick with lighting, that those old-fashioned lighting. And those old-fashioned lights were hot, too. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So yeah, when you developed a new venue, which we did, you know, three years later, as you're calculating load for they for air conditioning, you know they want to know what's the capacity. Say, okay, we expect to put 700 people in the room at once. Well, then they anticipate how much heat that generates. But then they also want to know exactly how much stage lighting we were using because again, pre LED, you know, so if you have 30,000 watts of stage lighting, that adds a lot of heat BTUs, and you got to calculate for that. So that's wild. Yeah, little things like that. So there is. Technological technology advances are, are nice. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I'm oh I'm sure. Uh, what was it like to immediately be a, almost like a public figure almost? Uh, to immediately have this start this uh, club and then get wildly popular very quickly. Um, wildly popular to a point. It was still you have music fans and mm -hmm. and you know obviously this in politics you would call that your base, and so. They were they the word of mouth on that was wonderful and they spread it real easily. But what started making you real money was when the average person who doesn't really care or follow music gets dragged to to a venue and they have a good time. Mm. That that's when it really starts snowballing. When did that start happening? Um well actually that was pretty quick. <laughs> <laughs> um so yeah, I mean right now when like Music is cyclical, live music is cyclical, like DJs, live music, DJ. And I think right now, in part, in part because of COVID, people weren't going out. So I think a whole generational thing of young people have kind of lost the uh, thrill of going to see a live band, a good live band, and really making it part of their you know habit of things that they would do. Uh, but I, I suspect that that's going to come back again. So. Well, I'd agree with you. Well, even as a, a young person now, I, I'm just now going out to see live bands. But I guess that I'm kind of at that age, right? That that's what you start to do anyway. Right. Um. But that was never like a thing. Like my dad was in a band all the time. I never went out to see him though. Right. <laughs> even though I, I, you know, I loved my dad and everything. I guess it was maybe probably too late in the in the afternoon for me to or evening rather. Sure. Uh, for me as a ten year old to go out and see a live band. I'm, Probably saved my ears, actually. <laughs> so when I was, one of the people was saying, what made you think of doing a club? Not directly, but when I was a little kid, uh, seven, six, seven, eight years old, my parents owned a club called Hullabaloo. And that was a franchise club. Uh, they were all over the country. Uh, and it was uh, live music. And different franchisees could do it different ways. You could do it like an over 21 with a liquor license, or you could do a teen club. They did a teen club mm. here in Lancaster and did some great bands. And we had a good little scene going. This was late 60s uh, into early 70s. And uh, that's what, uh, you know, motivated me. I mean, uh, I wasn't like ever since I was a little kid, I always wanted to own, open my own club. Mm -hmm. But when I started thinking about music again in the early, you know, one of my early 20s, I'm like, oh, you know what? It'd be cool to have a club. And that's where I got the idea, I suppose. So uh, how did... Because how you you talk a lot about your father being a businessman, uh, how much did that impact you as a child, and how much did that help you when you started your club? Oh yeah, that absolutely helped. Yeah, my father was always, uh, you know, he has an MBA, he's an engineer, 
Uh, he's always been president or, or vice president of some company somewhere. So, you know, and, and we would sit around the dinner table at night and he would talk about whatever he was talking about. And I'd always listen with fascination. So for me, the concept of opening or starting a business was never something I'd be afraid of. I mean, I started when I was a kid. I was selling flower seeds door to door and veg oh, really? vegetable seeds. And then I had my newspaper out and, and I was also collecting newspapers for recycling and I'd fill the family garage and my dad would have to bring a truck from his job once a, you know, once a few months and we'd fill that and then take it to the recycling plant. So I was always trying to be creative and making money. Yeah. That's probably a good thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so did you ever go to college for, for business stuff or? So yeah, when I was, I got out of high school uh, and then I was racing bicycles. So I took some time off before I went to college. And then uh, finally uh, I realized I wasn't going to go win the Tour de France. Mm. You know, I think every young athlete, whatever your sport is, you know, you, you have dreams and then you have the reality you of go um, to the Olympics. And you know what? Like, well, I'm not that good. Uh, <laughs> so, but I, I got to race against guys like Greg LeMond, who was the first American to win the Tour de France. So, that's cool. But that was a kind of a good benchmark for me. It's like, oh, yeah, I don't know. No matter how much training I'll do, I'll never be that good. You know, and so then it's okay, it's time to go to college. So I went to the University of Wisconsin. Don't ask me why. It was just random. Uh, and I was there for a year, uh, and it wasn't that interesting to me. Uh, so I came back, and then I went to F&M part-time uh, while I worked. Uh, and it was in that period. Now I'm over 21, and I'm starting to think, well, what do I want to do here? And then I was taking classes, but then I decided to open Chameleon Club, and that, that worked out. It just worked. Yeah. It's you know it's surprising to me how many people uh, who make really, really great things just like, God, it just doesn't work for me. <laughs> and they just make their own thing, and they make it, you know, make it relatively big. Right. I, for me, I think, like, if I decided there was something specific, I wanted to be, like, a doctor or a lawyer. Well, then you have to. You'd go to college, and you would do that kind of thing. But I was just going because you're supposed to go to college, and it it wasn't really focused for me. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. yeah that's, uh, that's kind of the trap nowadays is that you go to college because you're supposed to go to college and right. you know, you, you don't have to go to college for everything. Right. Uh, and so all, a lot of times it may end up being a waste for you. Well, see now I'm having this conversation with my kids cause they, uh, they, they all say, said, dad, you didn't finish college. Why should we go? I'm like, no, no, you gotta go. But, but well, <laughs> well, I mean, it depends on what do you what do you want to do. Right. If right. you got, if you want to be a doctor or a lawyer, you have to go to college. Right. But if you want to be like a, a trades person, right. You don't have to necessarily. You can go to, to a you know go to a mechanic, be like, hey, apprentice me or yeah, something right. like that. No, all kinds of options. There's yeah. all yeah. kinds of options. Even even in the music industry, if you want to be a sound guy, go to Zotropolis or somewhere. Right. Be like, hey. Well, actually, I understand they're opening a sound school up at the Rock Lidditz campus. Oh yeah. Uh, and I, I forget, apologize. There's a famous country musician who created one of these in Europe, I believe, if I read it correctly. And now they're building one here at, and I think they're spending like $10 million to develop the school because, you know, Rock Littis is a real business and right. they have a shortage of trying to find competent engineers that could go, that are willing to go on the road. So I think once that school starts churning out graduates, they're going to have an endless supply of audio engineers. So. Yeah, and there is a giant shortage of decent, good audio engineers for right, sure. Right. Uh, speaking of like audio engineering and all that stuff, you started uh, making a record label. Yeah, so the club had been in business about 10 years. Uh, so by the mid-90s, 
and it was going really well. Um, and uh, I got to thinking, you know, I was thinking of the great records that I always liked. And, and, you know, one of the great studios was Muscle Shoals out of Alabama. You know, bands like the Allman Brothers used to record there and the Rolling Stones. And um, and it was just basically a bunch of really high-quality session musicians in this little studio out in the middle of nowhere. And uh, I thought, you know what, why don't we build one in the club and we'll be able to do live recordings. And also we had a TV show that we were, we'd be able to send signal for, you know, uh, audio signal. And uh, and then also just do studio work and we could come in and do an actual record. Um, I got that rolling. And uh, you had mentioned early on in the podcast here that uh, the studio won a, with the Grammy Award. Technically, it wasn't the studio. They don't, don't give the award to the studio. They give it to the engineer. Oh. Yeah, yeah, but you know we're named. It's all part part of the record, so that's cool. You know, I mean, I hired the engineer. I I paid for the studio. I I equipped it, <laughs> so I figured, I, you know, I'll take some credit. So yeah. So what is it like to build a, a a record label? Is that's that's surely that's a lot of legal stuff. Well, it is legal. Uh, I had a good entertainment attorney in New York, um, and uh, it the goal was not to become a major label, but to be a feeder system where the bands would end up on majors after doing one or two records and hopefully, you know, showing what they can do doing club tours and things like that. Uh, and that was a good system back in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. Uh, but by the end of the 90s, the digital revolution was upon us. Mm. When I opened the studio, uh, 96 ADATs were a thing. That was uh, basically VHS tapes, but they were, it was a digital recording studio. It was the first generation of digital but it actually went on to a tape. So a, a VHS tape could hold eight tracks. So if you had a 16-track studio, you had two tapes running at once. You have a 24-track studio like we did. You had three decks, three decks, uh, ADAT decks on top of each other. Uh, and then they started out, the original ADATs were 16-bit, which is really low. Yeah. Uh, and then they went to get this 24-bit. That was big technology jump, and that's what we got. And then it went to 32-bit. Um, but to give you an idea, it was starting to take over the industry. Like people were starting to go, oh, this is this digital thing is real. It was before Pro Tools. So you still had the, on the mechanical stuff and you were just feeding signal to a digital uh, recording device. Um, and uh, what was Alanis Morissette was a Canadian artist and she had a, a record. It was a hit record called Jagged Little Pill. And that was recorded on 16-bit ADAT. And it, and it was a multi-platinum record. Oh, wow. So, you know, it showed the possibilities, but then we were only open for about a year, maybe a year and a half. And then hard drives started to come out. So oh, you got to have hard drives. Now the early hard drives were terrible and they, you know, still right, it right. held like 10 minutes of material. And then you had to like pull it out and put another one in. Um, but I, I, we could see the writing on the wall that keeping the studio and trying to just chase technology at, through this transition period. And also record companies, uh, Universal Record Group, which was a huge record group back in the day. And by the late 90s, they laid off 3,000 employees at one fell swoop because they realized that they were, record sales were just plummeting, or actually CD sales were just plummeting. Uh, people were just, well, stealing music at that point. Mm. Um, and it took a long time for digital platforms like Spotify and Apple to get really rolling. I mean, Apple ended up, you could, you'd buy your material and it would end up on your iPad, iPod, and iPad. Um, and then, then Spotify comes on board and then Apple music, you know, so it, it ended up 
which is, but the artists will complain because, you know, like a Taylor Swift will sell tens of millions of records uh, or singles off, you know, off of her or get plays from mm-hmm. Spotify or hundreds of millions of billions. And she gets, you know, these tiny That's... little checks. So it it's harder and harder for the artist to make money through the recording process. So basically the most successful artist, they, uh, they make their records and then they use it to help promote their touring uh, or their merch or whatever it is that they do. And then they still get royalties. If they're, if they're the songwriter or the performing artist, they get royalties for airplay uh, more than they get from Spotify. Mm. Uh, And, you know, stuff ends up in movie soundtracks or commercial soundtracks or, or whatever television. Uh, so there's mo- money to be made. There's still money to be made, but it's it's different. You know, back when Michael Jackson sold 30 million records, like Thriller, mm-hmm. he was making like, after everybody else got paid, he was netting like $2 a record. Well, that was huge money back in the 80s, you know. Um, right, yeah, that's, yeah, that's fair, yeah. And now, you know, you, nobody's making that kind of money. Yeah, it's kind of crazy how uh, artists, in order to make money, they need to go somewhere to to perform. Rather, uh, before it was just they need to go somewhere uh, to record something and then make money. Uh, It's all, it's the way to make money now is do it all live instead of doing it uh, recorded. We we had a young band uh, that used to play at the club back in the 80s called uh, Innocence Mission. And... uh, they ended up signing with A&M Records, which was a real quality label back then. And they got released. And it's really it's singer-songwriter stuff. Uh, Karen Paris is the lead singer. Her husband, Don, plays guitar. Mike Bitts on uh, bass. Uh, and uh, Steve Brown was on drums. And they all went to Catholic high school together. And at first, they formed as a bit of a cover band. They would play the lounges. And then they started doing their original material. And it's, it's really relaxed, kind of mellow music. But it's good. And uh, so they got rolling, and uh, they did a tour. I mean, they did a, they did several tours behind behind several records, but uh, they never really liked touring. I think Karen was just hesitant to be out on the road, and she just wasn't comfortable with it. But you could still sell records mm-hmm. uh, just because they were getting airplay, and, and it, you know they, they'd find their audience. Um, but now, an artist like her, like she still records. They still make records, you know, rarely. But it's the, you're basically the original audience, and it's really hard to break a new audience because they're not going on the road. And mm. uh, you know, I feel I feel for them or artists like that. You know, yeah, it's it's really hard to break into new spaces for sure, especially yeah. when everyone's already got their Spotify playlist down to a T, and everyone's like, oh well, I love My Chemical Romance, and I'm only My Chemical Romance, and I'm only this specific genre, right? Uh, to get bigger with it. There is so many. There are so many people that I've interacted with that are only folk, that are only blues, that are only uh, rock, right? Or only eighties music. You know, you just brought me back to the early Chameleon. Uh, part of the greatness of the club, and one of the reasons it has a good re- long-term reputation, is because we did a, such a variety of music, and we had a built-in regular clientele so they got turned on to all the different genres that i was bringing in uh and uh i because i you know my kids my kids are 16 19 and 21 now and i try and listen to their music once in a while you know we'll we'll run the car they'll turn it on 
uh, through their playlist. And and I'm just curious as to how they learn some of these songs. And because it's not like they're going out to concerts, or at least not for the last few years they haven't been. And uh, yeah, it's it's friends share stuff on Spotify or whatever. But it, I think I think being able to see stuff live and to see a variety of stuff is really exciting. You know, yeah, because if if you're if you're getting input from your algorithms, they tend to send you more of the same. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I would go nuts if I had to, like, as a programmer, if I was booking the music or if I was running a radio station, I'd go nuts if I had to play the same thing all day long, you know, or every time. Well, I mean, that's what a lot of radio stations now are nowadays are. It's, right. it's a bunch of the same stuff cycled over, like, every other hour or something. Right. Uh, and it's maddening. I... I to to kind of answer from my perspective that that question of how did how did these get exposed to these things for me it was radio right. uh because i remember listening to the radio while it was, on, it was on the bus or it was my maybe my dad's had like eight track uh some of that stuff uh old school old school yeah <laughs> or, or he had cassette tapes right um that i would listen to so uh, that was a lot of my my music i or even uh shows you know, shows right. would have their their music on, or the late night shows would have whatever music right. that, that they had on. That wasn't a bad way. They, they, yeah, yeah, the guys like Letterman and whatever they would put on some good stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And even now, you got the Roots playing on uh, what what, J- what J- Jimmy Jimmy Fallon or Fallon Jimmy Fallon, right? One of those. But the Roots is amazing, amazing. Uh, Questlove used to yeah. come to Lancaster. He had a friend that went to Millersville, and Questlove would take the train from Philly and then you know catch a cab out to Millersville and. Yeah, so just that's our Lancaster connection to the roots. <laughs> yeah, but I, I do agree with you. Like, um, college was the big expander for me in regards right. to to music. Um, not only because I went for music composition, so you kind of have to be exposed to all these different mus- musics. Right. Uh, but you're right. With Spotify, uh, you can you can listen to um, you know, the old the old stuff like the the feel good the guilty pleasures that's what i think that's what the playlist is called where it's like sweet caroline it's like all the right. everyone knows these songs uh or you can say hey this is what uh this is this is a playlist specific specified right. that's the word uh for you and it's just the same thing and and even now with like pop pop uh just pop style it's right. a lot of the same thing over and over again, just said differently. Right, right. Well, that's pop music has always been like that. Right. I mean, if you go back to the seventies when I was a teenager, uh, you know, I mean, I listened to WLAN FM ninety seven back then. You know, and it really hasn't changed. Obviously, the styles change, mm-hmm. but whatever the popular style at the moment was, basically every producer said, "Oh, we got a band we can make sound like that," and they send them out. And, yeah, I, I that stuff has a you call it ear candy. Mm-hmm. Uh, usually has a good hook, and maybe you can dance to it. Uh, but it doesn't have usually doesn't have depth. Doesn't have like legs. It won't last. You won't want to hear it in thirty years. Going, oh, I love that record. Other than the fact that it brings back a nostalgic memory for people. Right. Like, oh, I remember what I was doing when that was a hit that summer. You know, but uh, it's, it's a different thing than when you have an artist that you fall in love with and you want to hear their whole record deep tracks yeah i think yeah. what really got me into that was elton john yeah there you go elton john and uh, queen as well yep. really uh just captured me yeah uh because like some, some of the elton john's songs like tiny dancer right. well, that didn't come into pop- popularity until relatively recently right. uh because you know 
Tiny Dancer was such a different song. It's got what two two full verses before it goes into the chorus, and that's ne- that's like that's never been done before. <laughs> right? Uh, it's it's a slow build. It's a slow boiler song. Yeah, yeah. And like Bohemian Rhapsody, I guess that that's always kind of been a hit. But even like that kind of style of a song where it, it's a it's a rhapsody. Uh, right. Who does that? Right. You know, one of the things I, for radio, just you, you mentioned radio. Radio doesn't have as much power as it used to, again, because of Spotify and, mm-hmm. and platforms like that. But it, it used to be that each radio station had their own program director, so you had some, some individual, uh, so different parts of this country had different programs and, and different program directors, and, and you could hear. So, you know, if a guy or a woman heard a song she really liked, or, hey, I love this new band, they just start spinning it more. Mm. But there's most commercial radio stations don't have that freedom anymore, and they... They buy a service that feeds them the playlist. And uh, mm-hmm. so the, if there's a talking head DJ working locally, they're basically reading the news and, and telling jokes, uh, but they're not programming the music. So you kind of lose that interesting personal touch. And not only that, but there's ads every other well, song. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that's probably why Spotify has gotten so big, because right. people are sick and tired of the ads. So for me, I I used to travel a lot with bike racing, and I, I still travel a little bit like last year we took a big family vacation across the country and i like turning on local radio stations so you get to hear you know no matter where you're i kind of hear what's going on and mm. catch the flavor even of the ads and the djs and what they're talking about and what's important in the southwest or the upper midwest or that, that would be fun yeah that yeah, would be fun yeah. but that's thing in one area that's <laughs> hearing that all the time it's like okay i know this i know this ad by now right. my heart i can sing this ad but, if I wanted to. Yeah, conversely, it's also not as interesting as it used to be, be again, because of the national programming. It's like, mm-hmm. no, this is basically the same station I heard, you know, 500 miles ago. Right. Yeah. Fro- you can listen to Froggy Froggy Radio anywhere you go. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so what made the decision uh, to kind of end the club? It's, um, for me, uh, I sold the club in 2002. We got married in 2000. Had our first child in 2000. Same same girl? Yeah, same girl. Yeah. Uh, Claudia, yeah. Um, uh, yeah, she actually worked for me at Chameleon Club. She was going to Millersville. She became a teacher. Uh, and But in the process of going there, her and her roommates came and worked at Chameleon Club as, as uh, servers. Mm. So that's why I first met her, and we, we became friends. But then she graduated, and she uh, moved to Philly and was teaching there. Uh, but eventually she came back and took a job here in Lancaster County. So then that's when we started dating. And uh, yeah, but long story uh, shorter is you get married, you start having kids, going to bed at four in the morning and getting up at six in the morning is not compatible lifestyle. No, it's not. <laughs> so it was time to sell. But even before I got married, there was a burnout factor. You know, I was running the club. I was running a recording studio. I was running a record label. All three interesting jobs, but collectively it was exhausting. Mm. Uh, and we also had a TV show. Uh, we did a show. There used to be a network out of based out of Philly called Prism. Think early HBO. It was a premium cable network. Okay. Uh, and they had sports franchises. They had the Phillies, the Sixers, the Flyers. But they also show premium movies uh, like HBO did. Uh, and then they had some shows. And we were one of the shows. It was called The Chameleon Club. And uh, we did three seasons and we basically recorded the bands live on stage, five camera shoot. Uh, and then we also interviewed the bands. Uh, mm. there was a host. It wasn't me. 
and uh, and then they would edit it together into a 30 to 45 minute TV show. So you'd see a, a live song, and then they'd ask the band some questions, kind of like what we're doing right yeah. here. Uh, and then they would, uh, so it got edited together. It wasn't like they stopped the song and then, you know, sorry. Right, of right. course. Um, but um, that was a great show, and it was the number one non-sports show on Prism. And we were nominated for three Emmy Awards. Oh, wow. Yeah, and uh, we were renewed for the fourth season, and then that was when Comcast came in and bought the network so they could have the sports franchises, and they disbanded it. I'm like, well, see ya. But running a TV show, uh, we were also doing live radio broadcast. Uh, on WFM 97, we were doing uh, live dance music on Saturday night sometimes, like DJ music. Uh, and uh, it was interesting to see who would come out. It was real, uh, how, like house, house and dub stuff, early stuff. But really, the stuff you see in big cities like uh, New York or London. Right, yeah. And uh, it never really took off in Lancaster, uh, though I thought we were doing a good job with it. And then, uh, but interesting, once in a while, you get like an Amish guy would come in from the county on a Saturday night, like 11 o'clock. Like, maybe because they had a job where he was doing delivering mm -hmm. food or something in, in Lancaster. But And they, he'd be like, I hear it on the radio. I want up to see what this is. And it was. I thought that was interesting to see who would show up for that. So, but... So managing all that plus booking all the nationals, it was a lot of work. Yeah. Yeah. What what made you uh decide to start a TV show? Uh, you know, it was the next step. It was the next evolution. Uh and who knows what like you know, I have this music festival we do. Yeah. And uh there's some conversations going on and you may end up seeing it on a on a premium cable network at some point. Well, that's cool. Yeah, yeah. So that, it's it's crazy. You you're very much an entrepreneur. Yeah, I mean, you know, that's almost just because I get bored doing the same. Like, I like to add right, or yeah. create. And, yeah. That's, so, that's, that's awesome. I mean, you make, you know, if it's you, you're going to record, you make a good song. You're like, that's a good song. Are you going to stop? No, you're going to keep going and see what else you can do. Right. Yeah. yeah. That's that's incredible. Uh, so what is your, um, you do the Roots and Blues uh, Festival. Yeah, every year. How'd that start? Uh, well, that was easy. So when I ran the Chameleon, starting in February of 86, I created a blues festival uh, just once a year. And I did it, my birthday's in February, so I always did it on my birthday, close to my birthday weekend. Uh, it was kind of a gift to myself with the concept being, because the first year I wasn't sure if anybody would show up. Mm. Uh, it's like, I like the blues. It's like, it's not the only thing I like, but you know, it's right. just the thing I like. Uh, so I booked some cool blues bands and I promoted as, you know, uh, Chameleon Blues Festival. And people, lo and behold, because uh, the idea was if nobody showed up, that's a gift to myself. Right. Birthday. People showed up and the people loved it. And I brought it back every year and it went from one night to two nights to three nights. Uh, and it became consistently the biggest weekend of the year. And so the whole 17 years I ran Chameleon, we did it and it was a big success. Sold the club. The new owners tried it, but they weren't, hearts weren't really into it. It kind of fell apart. Mm. Uh, and then it never happened again. But after I sold the club, I was putting on all those sporting events you mentioned, bike races, running events, triathlons. And uh, I put on hundreds of events over the next 10 years. Uh, so, but then I, I was watching Lancaster kind of bubble up. It was getting another renaissance or really the first renaissance. Yeah. Uh, and, and maybe, maybe one of the early seeds from that was just from having Chameleon Club continue on. And, you know, it, it was keeping young people in the community. Like they weren't, a lot of times a town like Lancaster, when it wasn't really that exciting, 
you know, if you had options to leave, you would leave. Now there was reasons to stay. And the Pennsylvania College of Art and Design moved into town. Uh, Lancaster Bible College got bigger. <laughs> this used to be, a, I grew up near here. So this is, this is funny to see it, you know, actually thrive. But, uh, and uh, there was, so there was a lot of things going on. Um, the the Ware Center got built. Uh, the Convention Center got built. Telus 360 got open. And I said, you know what? What if we took the concept of the Blues Fest and put it across all the different venues, Chameleon Club and, and, and even some cool venues like the Elks Lodge, which has a cool stage, the Village, uh, and then the hotels. So, and then you get a wristband and you just wander from, you know, and rather than just make it blues, I call it Roots and Blues. So I can book a kind of a broad variety of music. And my definition of roots is really broad, but basically it's American <laughs> music. Uh, you know, so it can be rock and roll, blues, jazz, funk, soul. Americana. and uh, Yeah, Americana, bluegrass. And I'll even touch on, uh, you know, not this year, we don't have any, but we, I've done a fair amount of reggae bands, mm -hmm. which is not really American at all, but. It's right. fun. You know it's reggae. It's, it's yeah. fun, yeah. <laughs> hey, mom. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, so, because I, I missed the music. And that was, so it was motivated by missing the music and seeing the town blow up and trying to build a bigger thing. And that's how it came in 2014. It was the first one. The first one. Okay. Yeah. So what is it like to put all of that together? It's a, it is less than in logistics. Yes. Uh, but, you know, I've been doing this a while, so I had some, some thought into it. Uh, you work with the venues that are, have either let you do everything or like a like tell us they know what they're doing. Zootropolis knows what they're doing. Mm -hmm. Chameleon until it closed knew what they were doing, uh, so that made it easy. But um, I, I hire festival stage managers to work each each venue. Uh, we book the shows, and then uh, we get competent production at all the venues, sound and lights, staging if needed. Uh, we do basic backline drums, bass amp, uh, maybe a guitar amp. Some of the fly-in bands, some of the nationals, we need to rent keyboards whenever they need. But uh, so it's easier for transitions. So say you have a stage with five bands over the course of the day, you know, you don't, you're not setting and striking uh, right. five drum sets, which is always a cluster. Yes. <laughs> uh, you know, it's a cluster just for the sound man. Even if uh, he's not touching the uh, uh, the actual equipment, he's got to mic everything and remic it, mm -hmm. and then do a sound check. Whereas if you've got it all set, it, it goes. The transitions are much faster. Yeah. So it's that's just the technical end of it. It's the logistics end of it, making sure everybody has hotels who need them, food and, and drink. Uh, and then then it's the marketing end of it, mm -hmm. you know, and promoting it. Uh, part of it is riding the energy of the bigger bands and hopefully the local bands, but they're not as organized, uh, where they reach out to their fan base through their social media. So if you have like this this year, we're doing 50 bands over the course of two days. Uh, you know, if they all reach out to their fan base, uh, and then you know they, and then their fans say, "Well, I've seen, I've, especially for the local regional stuff, I've seen these guys. Or I've seen, you know, I like them, but I don't go to every show." Right. So oh, but wait, you know, so they're playing with this year uh, Anna Popovich or Bonarama or Albert Castiglia or Clarence Spady's big band. So it 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 motivates. Oh, you know what? I like Joe's band. So. Let's get a ticket. We'll go see Joe's band, and then we'll go see these other shows too. Yeah. Yeah. So, I, I'm curious. How do you uh, deal because 50 bands in two days? There's got to be some overlap. There's a lot of overlap. So you, it, it actually, it's almost an embarrassment of riches. And some people actually are annoyed by that because they're like, I want to see everything, but they can't. Right. Yeah. So you have to make choices. Um, 
and I like I what I tell people who either don't know the music because you know you look at that list you're not gonna unless you're really into music you're not gonna know most of these bands. No, I know only three of them. Right. There. So, but what I think one of the flavors that makes the festival unique and and fun is the process of discovery. So you you know you see a band and you say oh I want to go see those guys. And also, I built the website so that even if if you're the kind of person who really needs to be reassured, you can go and there's a web page for each band, and you can click on their videos. You can read about them. You say, oh, you know what? I kind of like that. I'll check that out. And that's at LancasterRootsAndBlues.com. Correct. Yep. Uh, thank you. Um, and uh, so, yeah. Anyway, ask me another question. <laughs> I just lost my tra- my train of thought there. I'm sorry. Um, how do you? Is this the same vetting process that you've always done? Uh, like vetting a band and putting them together. I, uh, yes. Uh, I have a good uh, network of as far you know as far as the local bands. I know who's going, who's 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 playing well. Uh, I'll see them, or people just tell me people I respect and be like, "Hey, this band's starting to roll," you know, and mm-hmm. I'll so I'll give them a listen. Um, but I know people all over the country. I've been in the business, you know, for over 35 years. So, uh, you know, I have a friend in Chicago say, Hey, you got to check this guy out. He's really good. And so I'll do that. So I get a jump over, you know, you don't necessarily have to, they don't have to be a hit on the radio locally for me to know about them. I'll know about stuff in Seattle and, uh, California and really anywhere all through the Midwest and and in the deep South. And, And so in new England, um, you know, we're doing this band called Session Americana. They're out of the Boston area. It's like some of the best Boston area musicians, which you can imagine is loaded with some good musicians. Yeah. And they come, and they're not big stars. They don't have hit records, but they played with everybody important. They're like, whenever you see a really good band where the guys, you know, the the lead or is a, has the hit record, but you don't know who the band is, these are those people that, that always end up on the best records or always go on the big tours but you don't really know them. Right. It's like the backup singers to the big right. acts. Right. Or yeah, the bass player, the drummer, yeah. The, yeah, the guitar player. And so they come together and they do this thing and it's like, wow, these guys are great, you know? So, um, and I have fun with that. So if a musician comes, an accomplished musician comes just to see the festival, that's the kind of band they'll stumble in on and go, oh yeah, this is the real deal. And then for the average person who you know doesn't follow music as closely, I like I like the process of discovery. I think just you know get your wristband and just start walking. Because if you walk into one venue and you know well, I don't really get that, just walk to the next venue and boom, hey, these guys are awesome. And uh, it should be said that these venues are pretty close together. Yeah, uh, about three blocks from each other, like all together. So like, you can yeah, it, it's not a lot of walking. It's more, but part of the fun is you get out of one show and there's like an energy and buzz to that crowd and they're walking, you know, starting to walk to some other venues and they're passing people coming from the other direction. Mm-hmm. And there's this whole energy in town, which is a lot of fun. Yeah, I'm sure it's, it's a uh, the The way I would describe it is going to Nashville and going on Broadway and then you just cop clubs and com- perfect description, completely different things. Or Austin South by Southwest conference, you know, like they'll have like 60 clubs open and you just bop along from you know, one to the other. I saw the last, not the last time, but one of the times I was down there, I saw Johnny Cash's, uh, basically his comeback, and he was playing in this club called the Continental Club, and we were mobbed in there like sardines, but you know it was really cool. Oh, yeah. yeah, Johnny Cash. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, 
I'd be just happy being squished with someone just to hear it. <laughs> um, so, what is how how do you how much is the wristband? That's my question. So, uh, pricing structure varies throughout the year. And in fact, I'm getting ready to lower the cost because we're going to call it inflation buster, uh, which I've never done before. The price always went up the whole way to the festival. Mm -hmm. uh, but clearly, this summer is unusual, stressing people out. Yes. And uh, so, uh, hopefully, by the end of the day, but tomorrow, I'll lower it. So, a one day is going to be $75. Uh, and then uh, a uh, two day will be like maybe 140 I have it written down. I don't remember what I'm doing. But so... You know, so 75 bucks, you get to see 25. You have options seeing about 25 bands a day. And uh, what are the hours for? So the box office uh, opens in the convention center around noon on Saturday. Uh, and the first band start playing at 1.30. And it just it grows, you know, so by late afternoon, all the stages are jumping. And certainly through the early evening. And so, and then on Saturday night, we do a jam session, which we uh, last year was one of the most amazing musical experiences of my life. Uh, Bobby Gentilla, who's going to be on your uh, podcast, uh, he runs that jam session. And so it's an invitational jam session. So it's like really the best musicians from the festival come. Mm, okay. And uh, and at, at the Elks Club's a private venue. So we, we ran it to almost three in the morning, like starting from 11 at night. And But it was magical. So Oh, I'm sure. If you, it, I, I've been to some jam sessions that, you know, that you know anybody can join in, and even right. those are like really awesome. If you get right. people who know what they're doing right. together, when it works, yeah, when it, right when yeah. it works, yeah. yeah, yeah. No, I've in the early days of the club, you, you know, a lot of bars and clubs, you know, they'll try jam session. It's kind of taken off my like a Tuesday or a Wednesday, and maybe you make some money, but uh, it was painful because a lot of times the choice, the number of good musicians that showed up were out overshadowed by the number of bad musicians. <laughs> it would fall apart. That that is the thing that happens. <laughs> yes, I must say. <laughs> I mean, it's okay if the only people in the room were other musicians, but if like uh, an average person who walks in off the street, they're like, "What is this?" <laughs> right? Yeah, it's it's the healthy balance of okay, I have to uh, adjust my skill to whoever's playing, and then to make it sound good because the 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 goal is to make it sound good, no matter who, and especially if it's like an open jam session, you right. don't want to say, "Hey, don't play." Right, because you know that's not that's not cool. But you have to adjust yourself to right. other people's skills, and that's 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 a, a lesson worth learning for right. sure. I re I remember one of the early ones we had a the '80s hair bands were still a thing, and we didn't do a lot of those at the club. What's that? Metal, metal. Okay. Yeah, you know, before hard alternative, it was just metal, mm -hmm. and uh, and so you called them a hair band because all the videos in MTV, the the metal guys all had like gotcha. long hair, and. Uh, so, you know, we got this guy, young guy, nice guy, but, you know, he shows up and he had a stack of marshals like for a jam session and he plugged in and he was just so loud. And I'm like, okay, we got to stop this. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. So, so, um, that's all going to be July 9th and 10th. How do you, how do you decide when to put it on? Is that, or is that, well, so we're kind of recovering from, uh, COVID, you know, we took, we lost, we didn't do 2020 last year. Uh, you know, they came out with the uh, vaccine in the spring. So I thought, you know, I'll shoot for the fall mm -hmm. and uh, everybody will be done. And foolish me, I was wrong. And then we had a COVID spike. So it actually, even though it was a great festival, we put a lot of great artists. Uh, it actually, the last ticket sales in the last two months just died because of the COVID spike. 
Uh, this year we're trying it again, and it seems like people don't care anymore. They've just given up. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's kind of the the feel. I mean, it's it's a combination, though. I think of you know the vaccine and and just uh, natural immunities because almost everybody's gotten sick at some point. Right. So it's just the amount of people dying from COVID has dropped dramatically, thankfully. Uh, so, but so th- as far as this summer, it's the first time we've done summer. It just had to do with availability of the convention center. It may. Uh, I may move it again. I, I kind of want to end up in the spring. Mm. Uh, but, That's a nice place to put it because yeah. bugs aren't that bad. <laughs> and that, that would be my main concern. Yeah. But also the nights aren't humidly dying hot. Right. Uh, but, you know, don't forget, this is an indoor fest For the most part, an indoor festival. Right. It's just the amount of walking out. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, but, you know, that's like even when we held it in the winter, uh, and actually that was refreshing because you'd be inside, crowded room, and then you walk outside and get fresh air for two blocks, and mm. then you go back into another you know, crowded room. And it's uh, probably a lot less competition in the winter. Cause... Yeah. Um, but it's interesting. There's also a segment of population who won't go out in February or won't buy a ticket because they're afraid of potential snow, even though we never had it. Like, right. They, That's, it's, yeah. you got to yeah. balance these things. But, you know, I've also I did all those sporting events in this, mostly in the summer, and, uh, you know, I've been devastated with, you get a tropical depression coming up the coast and all of a sudden, you know, it's a rain out or you get a hundred, hundred degrees for a week and nobody wants to be outside in a field, you know, or mm-hmm. you know, in, a, in a tent watching music when it's a hundred degrees. Right. Right. So, um, I'm curious about your sport. You said you rode bike as a kid. Is that right. really what inspired you to uh, start directing these big bike races? Yeah. I mean, I, I raced at a pretty high level uh, and uh, I, uh, I lived at the Olympic Training Center in Colorado Springs oh. uh, with the goal that, you know, maybe someday to end up on a world championship team or Olympic team. And uh, the coaches kindly told me, no, no, you're not good enough. But uh, <laughs> I mean, well, sometimes that's kind of what you need. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's how they do it. They always have, they like to have people to select from. And um, so, but yeah, uh, so I got to know all the, all the key players in the sport. And I, I love the sport, you know, um, it's kind of like if you were a minor league baseball player and you love it, but you just never made the majors. Mm-hmm. Uh, doesn't mean you don't ever want to be involved with it again. So right. that's why I came up with the concept. So, so uh, what's it like to org? Is it kind of a similar concept to the music festival? Yeah. Well, you're trying. It's this is the promotion end of what I. I mean, it's you're trying to create an event that people either want to participate in or pay money to come Watch see. Or, yeah. Or and hopefully you get sponsors, uh, and. Uh, collectively at the end of the day the end of the event you uh, theoretically uh brought more money in than you spent it's not always the case <laughs> yeah um I, how uh how knowledgeable are you about the questions in regards to like finance and that like that kind of thing uh i can tell you i know how to make money and i know how to lose money okay <laughs> well cuz my my curiosity is how do you plan for a budget when a lot of the money maybe comes afterwards. Yeah, that's a challenge. I mean, in, in a perfect world, you have funding up front, either your own, and then this is any business person's challenge. Are they are they self-funded? You know, have do they have money that they've saved from other things? Uh, did they win the lottery? Are they from a wealthy family? You know, did you get investors to come on board and help fund your vision? Uh and uh, did you rob a bank? I don't know, whatever. <laughs> uh, and then, you know, but even, even that, and then you can also borrow money, uh, but that's always stressful because if 
you know, you you run through a bad patch, and then you you know, now you start to damage your credit. So you, you ideally you, you do as little borrowing as possible. Mm-hmm. I mean, once you're really established in your brick and mortar, the problem with you know, like you can base your loans off of you know property, but when you're uh, doing events like you know bike races out in the country, or you're doing uh, concerts like this festival. There's no brick and mortar for the bank to secure a loan on other than my house, and you try not to use your own home. Right, so, that gets right. a lot of trouble. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> very quickly. So, how have you done it? Um, I in the initial days, we actually did a startup a fund funding. I can't remember which one we used, but one of those like GoFundMe or right. Kickstarter. And basically, we said, "Hey, you know, throw money at this, and you'll get tickets for the first festival." And we didn't raise much, like maybe less than twenty thousand. And then I sold shares, formed an LLC and sold shares. And I got local people who either knew me from back when I ran the club or just were just fans of music. Uh, so they did the initial round of funding. Uh, and that got us for the first few years. The uh, festival lost a ton of money in the first couple of years. I was trying to find a base. Mm. Uh, and I, I, wanted, I didn't know how many people would show up. The people who came loved it, just not enough people came. And also, it took a while to establish a relationship with potential sponsors. So, uh, and then things got better. Uh, but then my, uh, as we were starting to break even, which is what you want, and you want right. to keep going from there. Um, and then, unfortunately, my wife developed brain cancer, glioblastoma. Oh, wow. And uh, so, and that was a rough run. It's like the worst kind of cancer. Not that there's any good cancer. Right, but. Uh, so, and I actually ended up having to cancel that year's festival well the next year we got through the first year but like even that that festival that after she was diagnosed in 2018 uh, i held the festival in early 2019 but she had 70 doctor's appointments in the month and a half leading up to the festival and i was managing that either taking her myself or having people take her but i had to you know it was chemo and radiation daily this stuff it was just uh it's the drag. Yeah. And uh, so the festival wasn't getting my attention. And then we went right into COVID when my wife passed away. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we we were two and a half years went by where we didn't have the festival. Uh, and then this past year we had the COVID spike, which it was the early ticket sales were phenomenal. It suggests that we were going to really knock this out of the park. But, you know, I'm in this for the long haul. I get it. There's going to be wins and losses, and uh, mm-hmm. hopefully we're done with the losses. But, you know, I'm prepared to keep going. So, How do you gain sponsors? Because you talk about that relationship. How do you build a relationship with a sponsor? Mm-hmm. How do you gain that kind of uh, following? Well, uh, you, you know, you can have stage sponsorships. You can have uh, – we do a printed program. People buy, buy ads in the program. Uh, but, like, say the main stage sponsor, we have a big – 16 foot video screen so we'll run their ads uh, just like still logos uh between sets uh, we film the uh all the bands on the main stage so you can actually see them on the video screen mm-hmm. um and then so now that all that infrastructure is there it's easy to cycle sponsor names in there and of course they get tickets and they can give them e- either you know the owner or ceo or the president likes their tickets and give them VIP tickets, uh, or they'll get a block of tickets and give them to their employees or to their key customers. So there's reasons to get involved. And people love, even if they're not like a particular fan of the music, they get the concept that it really showcases Lancaster in a positive light. 
Right. It utilizes a bunch of our great assets, our venues. Mm-hmm. Uh, we fill all the hotels, not only in downtown, we fill all the hotels in the immediate circle around Lancaster. And as the festival grows, you know, we're going to fill every hotel in Lancaster. Right. Lancaster County. Uh, and so the restaurants boom, the, the, the hotels boom, even the retail shops, the art galleries, they do well uh, when the festival's in town because it's a, it's a nice demographic of people who we pull in not only half of our crowd is from Lancaster County. The next 25% are from Pennsylvania, but outside of the county. Mm-hmm. And, and the uh, last 25% or the first 25% are from outside of the state. Uh, so we draw, obviously, New York, New Jersey, Delaware, uh, Baltimore, D.C., uh, and then, and then there are people who just go to festivals, right? And, uh, I don't know if they're just rich and bored. I love music, but I'm not flying to California to see a band. I'm sorry. <laughs> right. <laughs> but right. there are people who fly from wherever and, and, you know, maybe they know somebody in Lancaster and they just kind of killing two birds with one stone or they always want to see the Amish and then, then they, you know, they go catch a music festival at the same time. Yeah, that's uh, that's some that's a, a bigger, uh, vision of mine for this show is to pull together, uh, to do a, a festival of people I've had on the show, and maybe even because uh, I've I've talked with a few people, but just to get because there's a, a million and five theaters around here, right? Right. Uh, it, it would be cool to get like a cabaret of all the theaters together and just show off, you know, the theaters of Lancaster. Right. right. I think that'd be really cool and really fun. And there's you know some new ones like Mickey's Black Black Box just opened in Lidditz. uh Phantom Power in in uh, Millersville. It's a club, but it's it's still set up like a got a balcony and yeah the, yeah uh and of course you got the american music theater and then the, a lot of the colleges the private school uh country day just built a, an unbelievably beautiful studio a, a, a theater uh acoustically perfect with adjustable wow. acoustic panels so for electric and acoustic shows that's cool yeah i mean they open in the middle of COVID, so nobody knows it's there but it's a stunning theater yeah so it's um that's cool man and of course, the colleges like I'm sure you have right here. You got Millersville, you got LBC, and even like uh, you got Servant Stage, Sight Sound. Yeah, know, one of the yep. bigger ones. Ware Center, you have the Fulton. Though Fulton. I've been trying to roll the Fulton into this thing. They just finished a thirty million dollar renovation. It's a stunningly beautiful theater. And uh, when I was a kid, I'd see great music there, like uh, Buddy Rich, the drummer. Oh, really? With his orchestra or uh, Dave Brubeck, you know, Take Five. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, his quintet. And, uh, but the theater scene is so booming in Lancaster right now that now they've got the, the renovation done that they, they're hesitant to even give up a weekend anywhere in the calendar to do music. So we're doing a little VIP party there, a reception, but it's not really a big, you know, we're not doing it in the big theater. So mm-hmm. maybe someday we'll get them involved. So. <laughs> it, well, that's the dream is to get bigger and bigger and bigger because the, the, the main goal of the festival should be uh, Lancaster. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's supporting Lancaster, supporting the arts, supporting. Yeah. It's it supports music. It supports the art scene because we are so a festival of music and art. We have the in the convention center. We do an art expo called Art Part. So we have a lot of uh, emerging artists displaying their wares. Um, and yeah, it's a cultural phenomenon. Yeah. I'm, I'm not just trying to do this to make money. I'd like to someday. Uh, but it's kind of a. You look at the great festivals in America. Um, the original, the granddaddy, is the Newport Jazz and Folk Festival mm. in Newport, Rhode Island. They've been going since the late 50s. And you know, Ray Charles used to play there. Bob Dylan played there when he was young. Uh, I mean, you know, uh, it, and it's still a thing. But Newport's a small town. Mm-hmm. Uh, they do it outside in the park. 
Uh, but they, they're limited by space. Uh, but it sells out every year. Uh, and then that, the guy who started that started the New Orleans Jazz and Heritage Festival, which is, a you know, they get a quarter yeah. million people every day. Uh, that's a huge festival. Um, and then, you know, then you, for Lancaster, I, I kind of like, I like Newport as a model uh, or South by Southwest, even though it's a bigger town, Austin, um, just where you go from venue to venue. Uh, you know, we're never going to be uh, Coachella, you know, 100,000 mm. people out in a field somewhere. It's just not that kind of thing. But there's not that kind of space here in Lancaster. Yeah, you just either. couldn't do it. Yeah, you yeah. couldn't support logistically. You just couldn't You'd support have to build it. a whole a whole different stadium <laughs> yeah, to, yeah, to yeah. be able to do that. And then and then not just the stadium, you would need the parking, you parking, would need the hotels. Yeah, yeah. You would have to create a city. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, I, I see this being uh, to the point where we're doing about 20,000 people over the course of a weekend, and that's probably as big as it'll get. But, you know, it, that's a big, consistent win. And then again, it showcases the entire community in a really positive light. And it encourages growth. Yeah, uh, yeah. immense growth. I I know for sure there are people who have moved here after coming to the festival. You know, they just they love it. They love walking around the town. They love, you know, if you go if you live here, you kind of get used to the architecture, and it doesn't seem that wow. But if you come from other parts of the country and you see this Victorian architecture, it's a stunningly beautiful town. Yeah, it's yeah. no, that's what kind of some of that that drew me in was was the food. They have amazing food here. Yeah. Uh, the even with like, like the Amish, you you can get some really great products here. Right, you're gonna get some quality furniture if you go out to like Intercourse yep. or somewhere. Uh, you're, you're gonna get uh, really cool music because this is like one of the music hubs. Uh, local and it's a good spot for music because then you can go to New York City. It's only three hours away. Pittsburgh right. is like only four hours away. Philadelphia is literally an hour. You got Harrisburg, York, and Reading, which are all other music little bubbles. You got uh, D.C., Baltimore, which is like two-ish hours away. Right. Down south. It's really great central spot. Yeah. And in, uh, in in the U.S. So it's it's a really great spot. So it, to bring, uh, to not bring attention to it is almost a crime. There's 75 million people who live within a three-hour drive of Lancaster. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. The, the audience here is, is immense. If, yeah. Yeah. As a business person, you, you're going to look at that and be like, I'm a dummy if i don't do that sure sure so um what are some upcoming projects for you are you do you here's a question do you plan uh how in advance do you plan these festivals yeah it takes me about a year to put them together though we did the last one in october so we put this one together in nine months uh but uh, like a year uh i mean i can i can do some other things uh i consult once in a while uh you know, people who are opening a venue will ask me for help. Um, but, the you know, like Chameleon Club just went out of business and Pennsylvania College of Art and Design just bought the building and they're going to turn that into, I think, uh, some student housing and maybe some more offices and maybe a small performance space, but it's never going to be like or, or, what it was. And people said, well, why don't you, when it was for sale, they said, well, you should buy it. I'm like, yeah, uh, I've done that. And it, then they've done that. Plus, yeah. it's not just... Like, I think, you know, I could renovate and make it neat. Or the village has been for sale. I, I, I think that would be fun. But I don't want to own it because it's, it's not just getting it open. It is now you have to book it, which is a full-time job. Yeah. Uh, and you have to, every weekend, you're, you're trying to fill it in sort of, and as many weekdays as you can, too. But it, it's, uh, so it's just constant overhead, constant pressure. Whereas the festival, it's one weekend a year. I can focus on that. Uh, though I have a friend 
who owns a beautiful piece of uh, real estate in Chester County. And he's trying to get permission to put on a big outdoor concert there. And he wants me to help him run it. So hopefully he'll get that permission. And if that happens, we'll probably start that in 2023. So what is your main gig now? Just running the festival. Just running the festival. And that's how you make your salary. Theoretically. <laughs> if everything goes right. That's You're right, right. That, that's that's. That's crazy. That's like every every almost every musician's dream is to be able to run a festival and that's it. Yeah, you know, running the club was a great experience running Chameleon Club because there you just know that there are times you're gonna you're gonna lose money. Not every mm-hmm. show makes money. That's just how it is. That's how it is. So now with a club, you have next week or the next month. It's gonna get better. It does cycle. There's there's peaks and valleys. Uh, with the festival, you know, ideally you you slam dunk it every year, and we're just not there yet, but we're getting there. So mm. yeah. So I with, mean, COVID kind of it just you know, right. cancer and COVID just threw everything out of whack. Yeah. So um, with all your big successes, what has kept you like real, you know, pretty big popularity, uh, well known, uh, high reputation? How do you keep yourself grounded? How do you? Uh, well, it's a big fish in a small pond. I mean, it's not that big a deal. Right. And actually I know people who are really big and successful in major markets. So I, I don't feel that like it's a big deal for what okay. I do. Uh, and, uh, also it's Lancaster County. So if you get too cocky, people will, will bring you down. That's also true. <laughs> they don't want to hear your, your bragging. <laughs> so what's your biggest support then? If, if when things don't go as you as you hope they do, what, what's right. your biggest support? Um, is that I have, a vision of a long-term goal of what this thing can be. And I recognize that, Hey, if you have a rough year, like last year, we, you know, we lost a ton of money. It's like, you know what? You just figure it out, figure out how to finance it and keep it rolling and it will come back to us. So it's a, it's just experience and vision and the combination thereof. And I do have a, a, a call them a fan base. Obviously I'm not a musician, mm-hmm. but people who like what I do or try to do. Uh, and they, you know, we have hundreds of volunteers that come every year uh, to the festival, which is a necessary part of the I'm component. Be a volunteer. Oh, that. thank you. Yeah. Nice. Uh, so, and it also a lot of people like you in the music industry volunteer just to get the experience. Mm-hmm. And yeah. So it kind of works out. Uh, and you can see when things go well, you can see how you do it. Right. And when things go wrong, you say, well, that didn't work. You probably shouldn't have done that. <laughs> so, um, but, uh, yeah. So I, I get support from the community. Like I get verbal support and, uh, it's really nice. So, that's awesome. Yeah. Uh, so what are, what is, what is some advice that you would give to somebody who's trying to start up a club or trying to start up a, a, a festival or something like that? What is some advice that you would tell them directly? Hmm. Well, you'll never have enough money. <laughs> like until you find the floor, we call it the floor. It's like in the economy, when the economy is crashing, there's a floor to it. And then once it hits the floor, then you build off of that. Mm-hmm. Um, I know what the floor is now with the festival. It took us a few years to establish that. Uh, and then you try to grow year to year after that. Um, and uh, yeah, I had a very specific size I wanted for, but maybe the suggestion uh, advice would be start small and, and grow in baby steps. It takes longer, but you know, if you reach for the stars and you get your legs knocked out one year, you may not recover uh, right, that's... For, for a festival or even a club. Um, 
and always leave options on ways to raise more money. You know, if you have shares, don't sell all your shares right away. Right. Right. Uh, then you lose your business. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I mean, it happens. Businesses fail all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, the festival community club should have failed uh, multiple times until it really got rolling. It, 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 you learn, especially when I moved to the Water Street location, uh, you know, I quadrupled the size of the venue. Uh, but it took a while to quadruple the customer base. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it was a rough touch and go for a few years there. So. so what is one thing that you know now that you would wish you had known when you had first started? Oh, geez. You know, that there probably are specific things, but like I look back when I was 22, 23 years old, I, if I knew then what I know now, I wouldn't have opened the club. Really? Yeah, because there's too many risks and liabilities, and 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 it's it's a risky investment. Absolutely, yeah. But at 22 and 23, that's what I wanted to do, so I made it work. There's something about having a vision and just going for it, uh, whether you're playing music or booking music or really in any field. Uh, and, uh, you know, you just said, this is what I'm doing. And then you're going to have days where it's not working. So you keep working and you figure it out. Uh, you make adjustments and, uh, you go forward. So, you know, I mean, there's a joke in the restaurant industry and it's true for nightclubs too. And, uh, you know, if you're a consultant and and you say, Hey, you know, give me $50,000, I'll save you a million. And all right, all right. It's like, yeah, they pay you. And they say, okay, so what's what's the advice? And he says, well, don't do it. <laughs> um, but there would never be a live music venue. There'd never be a new cool restaurant. There'd never be really all kinds of businesses. At some point, you just got to take the risk and do something. Yeah, it, it's, yeah, that's, <laughs> that's wild because, you know, uh, business, I think, was it more than half the businesses that are started every year fail? Uh, somewhere? I think like, Four out of five in the first five years fail. Yeah, yeah. right. So it's very risky. Yeah. Uh, it, any kind of business. Any yeah. kind of business. Yeah, right. any kind of This business can fail in four or five years. Right. Um, and it's barely a business. Uh, so it, it's, that's interesting. If you had known what you know now, you would have said, stop. Don't yeah, do it. Yeah, except I would do it anyway because I want right, to do exactly. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And also having knowledge, you know, there's like specific shows like, oh, I never should have booked that band, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and then other stuff, like, oh, I missed them. I should have got, like, I had a chance to do a band called Nirvana. Oh, really? I got the call and they had just released that record with Smells Like Teen Spirit, but it wasn't a hit yet. And uh, the agent called me and they said, hey, we got a date. And they said, we need 500 bucks. And I, right. so what I did is I, I did, it's called market research. So, Back then, you know, that was early alternative slash punk rock. And uh, we had Lancaster, for whatever reason, has produced a lot of punk rock writer stores. It has. Yes. So uh, I would just call the owners up at the record stores, and, and I'd get feedback. I'd like, hey, have you heard of this band Nirvana? And I called this one guy up, Bill, and, and he goes, yeah, yeah, they're all right. Uh, they, they got a new record coming out. Um, You know, I wouldn't give them more than 500 bucks, which is exactly what it was asked. So... Oh, good, good to know. Well, I didn't call the agent right back. I called him like the next day. 
And he goes, ah, it's all right. We're, we're putting him in a club called J.C. Dobbs on South Street in Philly, which is like a post. It's as big as a studio. It's very small. Oh, wow. Uh, I'm like, yeah, no big deal. Well, then like three months later, that record right, just exactly. went through the roof. Yep. You just don't know. Um, well, you know, conversely, uh, who would we do? Uh, there was a hit back in the early 2000s, Runaway Train. Oh, I should know the band. Oh, I... Um, yeah, anyway, it was a real real hit. I booked them when they were when it wasn't a hit. But by the time they got to the club, it was like top 10. It was just mm-hmm. shooting up the charts. And ideally, again, a bigger market, what you do is you'd switch venues and go to a bigger venue. Mm-hmm. But at that point, we didn't have relationships with the bigger venues. And it was just like, all right, we'll just do it. But I could have sold that show out three or four times. Right. You know, so it, you know, that, and it, so that's just, you know, you lose your Nirvanas, but then you have your other bands that hit and do well. So... So what what are some of maybe the biggest mistakes that maybe you have made or you've seen other venues make, and how do we combat that, or how or so so that we we don't make those same mistakes, or whoever's listening doesn't make those same mistakes. Um, for for music for live music, you want to get a decent sound system. Uh, I mean you can go to Claire Audio and Lidditz and spend a ton of money. Yes, and it will be a very fine system. But you can also get a good system for a lot less. But you need a consistent, well-maintained, you know, the monitors have to work, the soundboards have to work, the lights have to work. Band has to come in feeling good about it. They plug in. you got to have good microphones, good cords. You know, all your cords have to be up to date and, you know, fixed. So that usually requires a competent sound staff. You know, you may have a head engineer and a couple young kids that are coming up. Uh, I developed a lot of really good sound engineers. Uh, we had a kid named Kenny Heitmiller. He was a teenager, started working for me. Uh, and uh, he was the best sound engineer I ever had. He just had the golden ear. Mm. Uh, and also he was technically adept. Though kind of a funny quirk about him, he was a mess. So like, <laughs> if you looked at the sound booth, the cords were just piled everywhere and it looked like spaghetti. You know, where I've had other sound engineers, where everything was pristine and clean and organized mm-hmm. and labeled. Uh, but they didn't have the ear. So, you you know, you, it's a challenge. But Kenny ended up uh, forming a local band called Suddenly Tammy. And they ended up, uh, and no guitar in that band. It was bass, drums, and p- piano. Uh, and there was nobody named Tammy. Uh, <laughs> um, but Beth was the lead singer-songwriter on piano. Uh, they got a record deal on Warner Brothers. Oh, wow. Uh, so he ended up, you know, going and touring the country. And a funny story about that. We did a band from New Zealand. Oh, geez, now I should know that name. It's funny. I, I booked over 5,000 bands, so it starts right. to blend together after a while. But they're loading in, and I was real happy to have them. And uh, back then, this was mid-'90s, the, the band, rock band Live, who had started at Chameleon Club when they were teenagers, uh, and then they got signed, uh, and uh, they sold millions of records, like over 20 million albums. And... Uh, but they had the number one record in the country. They were on the cover of Rolling Stone. They were on the cover of Spin magazine. Wow. Uh, which is the, you know, back when magazines were a thing. <laughs> right, right. Um, and so this young, this band from New Zealand's coming in and they're like, wow. Like they're loading it and they were literally, they felt they were in the presence of greatness as they're looking at the room. And I'm like, and they're like, yeah. I said, you know, lives from here. And they're like, yeah, but suddenly Tammy is from here. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, and now suddenly Tammy never had like hits. Like they were a college radio alternative music. Uh, 
And, uh, but apparently they had a song that went to number one in New Zealand. Oh. Or, or one, one, yeah, and went gold. Um, so from this band's perspective, being in the club where suddenly Tammy was from was a big deal. Uh, and, uh, you know, I told them that story and they cracked up. I mean, number one in New Zealand means you sell 10,000 records or gold records. In New Zealand. Like, it's it just, you know, it's all relative to the size of right, the country. Right. But, you know, so that was fun. But they didn't even care about live because live wasn't getting at that point much airplay in, in, uh, in uh, mm-hmm. you know, New Zealand. So, What are some uh, best or worst things that happen on stage during, <laughs> during performances? Mm. Oh, we did a band called Insane Clown Posse. <laughs> I don't know if you ever heard of them. ICP. I don't, I don't think so. Yeah, and their their fans are called Gigolos or Juggalos. Juggalos. It's it's a rough band from Detroit, mm. and they pretend to be gang members. I mean, I have no idea why I booked them. I guess some kids were saying, "Oh, you got to get Insane Clown Posse," so I just did it. And, oh, they spray Fago soda, like orange soda or root beer, all over the club. Oh, it's part no. of, like, and the kids, so you go to a, an Insane Clown Posse show and you get covered in soda, that's like, hey, I was at the show, you know. I'm right, just, right. So you got to cover all your equipment and, you know. Uh, but they were just idiots. <laughs> this I could say overwhelmingly positive experience with almost every band that I ever played or, you know, or, or a benign experience. Yeah, once in a while you just get a plain old idiot, and they were it. Yeah, <laughs> and you know, so you're you're kind of the venue. You know, I'm the guy who booked it. It's my fault, <laughs> and you're just kind of shaking your head, like, why did I even think that this was going to be a good idea? <laughs> it's you know, some it's a part of the vetting process, right? Yeah, and so you know, when I say I booked bands I liked or I thought were good enough. There was some, you know, once a band becomes a national band and now you start getting a lot of requests for them, you know you're going to do ticket sales. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you say, yeah, maybe I'm not really into that music, but it's going to sell out, so you just do it. You know, it's like a movie theater owner. It is, they take what the studios send them. Sometimes it's a really good highbrow movie with, you know, feels good, it's well-written. Sometimes it's just junk. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like, um, but, you know. Well, this has been a lot of fun. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, no, I've really enjoyed myself. Thank you. Yeah, uh, so upcoming is your Roots and Blues Festival that is happening the 9th and 10th of July. You're going to catch, probably going to catch First Friday uh, audience too. No, First yeah. Friday is the week before July 1st. Oh, that's right. Right. Oh, that's yeah. unfortunate. Yeah. Um, it's okay. It's a different, it's a right. different thing. Uh, and actually, First Friday has its own energy. So if That's you, right, yeah. Yeah, it's it actually the town get a little too crowded so yeah that's fair but yeah july 9th and 10th lancaster roots and blues uh and if you don't you go online lancasterrootsandblues.com and you can see all who's coming and learn all about them uh and if you can only come one day you know pick a day you want to come uh if you can get a two-day ticket i encourage it uh and then even if it's a last minute decision for you you can just show up and go to the box office in the convention center and and they'll get you a wristband yeah, and uh, looking at these, there's going to be some really great acts. I know uh, Bobby Gentello, he's going to be he's he's coming on, and he's amazing. Yeah, Nina DiVitri. Yeah, uh, the old entire DiVitri family is wildly talented. Yes, uh, and she's going to be there. Um, the uh, Ben Brandt and the Soul Miners. I had 
the bassist Liam Galliano, uh, he they're gonna be playing, and that's really good local bands. Uh, so definitely come out and check it out. It's and it's just gonna be an experience anyway. Yes. So um, and you know what? If you're a say a, say a student on a budget, um, we are still looking for some volunteers. And what we do for your volunteers is uh, you you got to work a shift, you know, four or five hours, maybe six. But you'll also get tickets for the festival, so you can uh, you know enjoy the music, you know, and you're invariably going to be working a venue where they'll see bands, yeah. Uh, and then also, uh, you know, after or before your shift, you can uh, go check out the other stuff. So it's a cheap way for people with no money to come come to the festival, a free way. And you're going to experience some really cool venues. Zotropolis is an amazing venue. If you've never been to Zotropolis, uh, what it, what it is? It's a theater house. Right. And instead of uh, they kind of ripped out all the theater seating and instead put couches there, yeah. And so it's gonna it's gonna be really cool. You can get really close to the bands. They got really f- good food there. Telestry Sixty is also is another awesome event. I've never been to the village, but I gotta I gotta check that out. Well, you gotta go soon because uh, yeah, right. Uh, there's a possibility that we're gonna be the last show. I, I, I'm waiting to see what the owner says what they're doing the rest of July. But there's a chance that they're they're shutting down for the new owners, and I I don't even know if the new owners are. Uh, if they're going to continue running it as a music venue or whether it's going to get knocked down and turned into condos. <laughs> That's something we're going to have to figure out later. Yeah, but yeah. Uh, definitely check out Lancaster Roots and Blues. They're on Instagram, Facebook, and you can check them out on uh, the website, LancasterRootsAndBlues.com. Uh, Rich also does some other cool stuff with, with bike races. Do you anything coming up from that? Or? No, actually, uh, I, the only thing I do now is watch them. Ah, fair <laughs> enough. Well, hey. If you don't catch this Roots and Blues, you can catch it next year, right? That's correct. And with all that said, I hope you guys... Oh, make sure to follow us. That's right. Uh, follow me at facebook.com forward slash the story, Corey Rosen. That's C-O-R-Y-R-O-S-E-N. And you can search that uh, that thing as well, the story, Corey Rosen, on all streaming platforms. Catch us, catch us on there. And if you'd like to support us, you can buy stickers. We got stickers. Uh, five inch by two inch vinyl vinyl stickers that have the logo on it and I'll show it to the camera and you can also get hoodies that have the logo on the front and then the first 50 guests on the back so if you really want to support us you can do that you can message us on Facebook or Instagram whichever way and but with all that said I hope you guys have a wonderful rest of your day and see you guys tomorrow where I have Bjorn Jacobson uh, a, a really cool cat from Lancaster uh, really cool experimental music uh, coming on tomorrow so be sure to catch that at 10.30 as well with all that said <laughs> I hope you guys have a wonderful rest of your day bye bye so long thank you <laughs>